Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you to all, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the J-Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to them. Of course, this pod is on all platforms, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to increase the visibility of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. In turn, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so that I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, and credible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen to and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to the website for more information about me, the pod, archive shows at www.jreels.com. I appreciate you all. I thank you very much for listening, trusting, and believing in me. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing? What is the latest and greatest? Wishing all is well in your world, wherever you may be listening to this. I'm glad you stopped by to have me entertain and inform you as I navigate the sports universe as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And now, 177 episodes in. For those who've been listening to me from day one till now, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, February the 8th in the year of our Lord, 2021. Shouts to my brother, Ruben, who today turns 37. So happy birthday to you, my man. And wishing you many, many more to come. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast is as follows. Trevor Bauer signs on the dotted line with the LA Dodgers. What does this mean for him joining the defending champs? His chance to come to New York and be a part of the Met rotation? Well, obviously that's not going to happen. So a lot of Major League Baseball comings and goings that take place over the past week. I'll get into all that. As well as the NBA All-Star Game backlash by LeBron James and others. To no surprise, I mentioned this last week as to... Why have this all-star game, especially during this time? I get it's all about money at the end of the day, but you know I'll get my two cents more on that as well as what LeBron had to say, De'Aaron Fox and others. College basketball being affected by COVID, no surprise there as number two Baylor had to postpone games and may have another game postponed by the end of the week in which they may face Texas Tech, but we'll definitely navigate through that as well as what's happening in the NHL as more teams are postponing games. This time you have the Colorado Avalanche postponing games through Thursday where Buffalo will finally get back into the fray with their schedule today. The Australian Open, lots to get into, my hero and zero of the week. Well, the NFL season, 2020, with all the landmines and everything that they had to go through to just not only get a week of games off, but a whole season, a postseason, and then the Super Bowl came to an anticlimactic and forgettable ending last night with a game that typified their postseason. Now, I understand not every game is going to be a classic or come down to the wire or have multiple twists and turns. Understood. But if you're Roger Goodell and CBS especially, no matter how much you want to spin it and put 14 cherries and whipped cream on top, the game last night was an absolute dud. Now, give Tampa Bay all the credit in the world. They were the better team and the best team by far. So kudos to my guys, the only two Tampa Bay Buccaneer fans that I know, Gerald Brown, who has been a former guest on this podcast, and I'll see if I try to get him on later this week, and Reed Nicholson, who lives down in Tampa. So 
Got to give them props. This was a matchup that was made in heaven and everybody anticipated between the old quarterback in Tom Brady and the young up-and-coming riser in Patrick Mahomes. But that match made in heaven turned out to be a game from hell. And there's no other way to cut it. I know that may be harsh. I know that may be strong. But that's just how it turned out. It was about an unexpected of a result that I don't care what NFL fan, sports fan, that one you did not see. Forget about coming from a mile away, let alone two feet away. And even though there's not a lot to really dive into, obviously to me, the big part of the game was in the second quarter, which I'll touch on and break it all down for you. Even the commercials and the halftime performance, because this is it for the NFL. And we all know that the Super Bowl is a big giant spectacle. It's not just a regular game. The whole world is watching. But before I get into that, to me, the three takeaways that I get from yesterday's game, and the first one I have to get out of the way and even send an apology to you guys, because if you listen to last week's podcast when I previewed the game, I pretty much cut through all the nonsense that you would probably hear from all the other networks, radio stations, and even podcasts for that matter, dissecting this game. And I know that the absence of Eric Fisher... Him blowing his Achilles in the AFC Championship game against Buffalo was going to be huge. But geez, I didn't expect that uh, Anthony Munoz was going to be off the field and where the Kansas City offensive line had to be shuffled from the right tackle to left tackle and right guard to right tackle. And I tell you, we knew that that was going to be a matchup for the Kansas City Chiefs was going to be a tough one, but nobody expected that it was going to turn out to be that way. I mean, please, I knew it was going to be a struggle, but that they could have had me at outside linebacker on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I would have had a clear path to the quarterback. I mean, that's how bad it was. It was just downright embarrassing to think that a patchwork offensive line, I get it, patchwork. But the combination of that, the lack of adjustments by Coach Andy Reid, and I get that his team for pretty much the last three years, even going back to the year 2018 when they made it to the AFC Championship game and were that close to going to the Super Bowl, where their offense is so structured and is a juggernaut. We know that with the players that they have. But for them to not make those adjustments, whether that means to have people back to max protect, whether that means to have wide receiver screens, they have the personnel to do that, whether your name is Tyreek Hill, whether your name is Miko Hardman, whether your name is even Sammy Watkins, who showed up there yesterday, Byron Pringle, Demarcus Robinson. I mean, they have weapons galore. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who had some glimpses throughout the course of the game, but at the same time, Their offense was not a factor thanks to the Tampa Bay defense. And of course, I'll get to them in a second. But but I'll say this. I thought the game played on an even surface. Granted that it was at home for Tampa. But I thought that there was no way with what you saw in weeks prior, whether it was down in New Orleans or up in Green Bay, where they won the turnover battle and converted all their turnovers into touchdowns, that they would need the same recipe for success against the Kansas City Chiefs because of what they've displayed here over the course of the last three years. And that wasn't to be yesterday because, as we've seen, not only with the Tampa Bay defense, but the Kansas City offense not even getting close to being what they have been over the last three years, and therefore putting up a performance where nobody in their right mind would have even predicted, forget about just scoring nine points, but not scoring a touchdown in the process, please. I get it's all on the offensive line, and I'm going to segue to that because that is the one question that's going to be bandied about over the course of the next couple of days. Was it more the Tampa Bay defense, or was it more the Kansas City Chief offensive line? Now, I'm going to give credit to the Tampa Bay defense. First and foremost, they showed up. Think about this. Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, were their names even mentioned in the first half of the game? Now, I believe Hill had one catch and Kelsey had a couple of catches, but definitely did not have the impact that they usually do and have their, as I like to call, fingerprints on the game, the way you see them week in and week out. And I know Kelsey ended up having good numbers at the end, but we all know that was garbage time and those stats were padded because of the way the score was. Now, when we look at Tampa's defense, they were able to come up with a wonderful game plan and Todd Bowles. I don't know what happened 10 weeks ago in that game against the Chiefs at home, that November 29th game where Tyreek Hill had 203 yards in the first quarter alone. And he learned his lesson, that's for sure, because they had the two safeties not only deep, but they also had the linebacker, Levante David, who had a phenomenal game covering Kelsey the way he did. And they were able to neutralize those two guys to where they were looking at having the Clyde Edwards-Hilaire or the 
Sammy Watkins or Demarcus Robinsons to beat them. And as we've seen, that wasn't the case. But the Kansas City offensive line from the start, even in the opening drive by the Chiefs where they had a first down where Mahomes had to run to the sideline to get that first down. And although he had plus yardage in that first half and was able to get out of the pocket and move the chains or at least get some chunks on the ground. But we all know at the end of the day, it's about what he does with his receivers and throwing the ball in the air. And he was unable to do that in the first half. So you got to credit Tampa there. And the offensive line, I mean, geez. Like I said, I could have lined up there and I would have probably had about eight or nine pressures, maybe a sack, forced fumble, who knows. But the offensive line for the Chiefs there yesterday, man, that was an embarrassing display that they get an F- in my book. You can look at it from either vantage point, but to me, it's more on the Tampa Bay defense and what they did in order to not only slow that offense, but hold them not only just to nine points, but pretty much shut them down for the entire 60 minutes. I mean, to think no touchdowns by the Chiefs, none. That's number two. And then the last thing is Casey's undisciplined defense, especially during that second quarter. And that's where really the game turned. And we'll break down the plays. We'll get through that in a second. But for them to just implode in the biggest spots of the game, whether your name is Chris Jones retaliating with the offensive lineman there, getting a 15-yard unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, which was key in leading to Tampa's first touchdown drive. That was the... Touchdown with seconds to go to Gronkowski to make it 7-3. to three. And then to me, I thought the biggest play of the game at 7-3, and this is after Tampa being stopped first and goal, and it was right for Bruce Arians to go for it there. Fourth and goal at the one-inch line. Why not? Your defense was playing well. It was still early in the game where obviously the Chiefs, even at the one-foot-yard line, you could still trust them to think that they could go down the field or at least move the chains to get themselves out of the shadow of the end zone. But for them to get stopped there on that fourth and one by Ron Jones, and I don't know why Bruce Arians decided to challenge that because as much as Jones, and it looked like his momentum was close at first watch at regular speed, but you could tell by all the angles there, there was no way that the ball crossed the goal line. It didn't even break the plane, didn't come close. So then now, even after all that, you had a situation where Tampa was marching down the field and then the interception by Tyron Matthew there having to be overturned. And I believe that was on third and four. I forgot what that was. It may have even been a fourth down off the top of my head. But obviously it was a third down. And for it to be intercepted there by Matthew deep in Kansas City territory and for that to be overturned because of a hold by the cornerback Charvarius Ward on Mike Evans And when I saw the replay, to me, it was debatable. And for what we've seen throughout most of this postseason, where the referees have pretty much let them play, have let it be open, have not thrown every flag or not blown the whistle on every little particular thing, to me, that was a call that was very questionable. And Tony Romo, who did not have a good game, and as I said weeks ago, I'm tired of the Romo pom-pom express I'm not saying he's terrible to what he does, but I've had enough. That honeymoon is over. You know, he said some things last night that just drove me crazy, and I get it. The game was out of hand, and he's saying things about, oh, well, Kansas City's still in this game. Uh, Stop. And Romo, I'm not going to get into every little thing that he did, but if you watched him and listened to what he had to say last night, he did not have a good game. And that call was pivotal, because what it did at that point was not only did Tampa get the ball back, But they were able to set up for a field goal in which now, going back to being undisciplined, Suckup makes the kick, but then there's a flag offsides on a fourth and five by, I believe Hamilton was, and Tampa gets the ball back again, and that leads to the Gronkowski touchdown. So to me, it was a 7-3 game where Kansas City had the ball in a turnover there, flag thrown, very questionable. Next thing, field goal, good, but wait a second, flag, First down, Tampa, and then in the end zone. So you had a turn of events where it was from 7-3 to 10-3 to 14-3. And to me, that was the game. I know you could talk about the call later on where Brashad Breeland interfered with Mike Evans there on the sideline, which I don't know what the Chiefs were doing there in Spagnolo, but you knew. All you had to do was just look at the game prior versus Green Bay when Scotty Miller got past the defense there for that touchdown. 
that he had to play deep. That there was no way that any one of those receivers had to get past their secondary. And sure enough, what happens? Now, that was the right play by Breland. He knew that he was desperate. That would have been a touchdown as it was. It led to a touchdown. And that was also, could have been debatable because the legs were tripped up. And usually it pass interference isn't called on that. But it looked like Breland got the, definitely the lower body on Evans. Maybe a hip, maybe somewhere in the leg where it looked like there was interference and that's where the flag was thrown. But it wasn't conclusive. It wasn't an obvious, oh, I got to throw this flag. And then just a few seconds later in that drive where Tyron Matthew then interferes with, I believe it was Gronkowski, there in the end zone. But that ball was five miles thrown over his head. That should have been a play where the ball wasn't going to be caught. They should have eaten the flag there, but it set him up pretty much right there first and goal. And then the touchdown pass to Antonio Brown to make it 21-6. to And that was your game. Those sequences there by the KC defense that played just as undisciplined and terrible. They just went right into a shell. And not to confuse the Chiefs defense for the 85 Bears or the 2000 Ravens. But man, that display over the course of the latter part of that second quarter pretty much doomed them. And granted, we know we talked about Tampa's defense and the offensive line by Kansas City understood, but that was just a terrible display there by the defense. And that pretty much set up your Super Bowl from there on out. Because then when you look at the start of the third quarter and you're thinking that maybe Kansas City could get on a little bit of a run. Now they were down 21-6. They did move the ball. I thought they should have gone no huddle there. They didn't go no huddle until after Tampa scored that touchdown at 28-9 which to me was too little too late. But if they would have went no huddle, and they did move the ball there to start off the second half, maybe the long layoff because of the halftime show, etc. Maybe it had Tampa on the heels a little bit. But that was the key. When they came out, all right, they got the field goal, 21-9. Let's see what the chief defense could do here. And then what you saw, they just marched down the field. Obviously, Leonard Fournette gets the run, 27 yards to the end zone, and that was the game. 28-9, you knew that they weren't going to come back. Granted, there was about, what, three minutes left in the third quarter. And although I'm sure people in Kansas City were hoping and dreaming for a New England-Atlanta scenario that happened three years prior or four years prior where Tom Brady brought their team back from the dead, that was not going to be the case for the Chiefs there yesterday. With that score, with that offensive line, with the way they played the whole night, it was not meant to be. And just to think, Right before the end of the third quarter, Patrick Mahomes eclipsed the 100-yard mark for the game. And that pretty much sums it in a nutshell, that if I were to tell you that Mahomes had that many yards thrown through three quarters, then you see why the score was 31-9. And that's it. I wish I could add more to this game. Like I said, this was an NFL postseason that probably gets a C at best, maybe a C-. minus. Because you only had the four games that were thrilling. And maybe one of them you could kind of throw out, which is the Baltimore-Tennessee game. But because of the way it ended, the interception, just the rivalry, everything that transpired between the two teams going back to the division round last year and then the regular season game this year. So that gets thrown in there. But you had the Indianapolis-Buffalo game to start off the whole postseason, which was a very good one. It came down to the wire. You had the Cleveland-Kansas City game that came down to the wire. And then with Mahomes and his health, not knowing if... He was going to be back the following week to play against Buffalo. And then the Green Bay-Tampa Bay game. And that was your postseason. Other than that, it was not a good postseason. I don't care what the NFL says or what they'll talk about. Oh, 100 and so odd million people watched. Who cares? The game was terrible. You got to call it like you see it. Now, as far as Kansas City, I'll start here. They were due for a bad game. Nobody thought it was going to be on this stage and granted that the 2018 playoff run which was thwarted by Brady in New England there in the AFC Championship game still a great comeback there by Mahomes you could look at that game you could look at the Super Bowl last year when they were down 20 to 10 after Mahomes threw that pick deep in Niner territory and how they came back and won by 11 at the end and we get that they're not going to pull all these games out of their rear end time after time after time also, down 24 nothing to Houston. Down, I believe, 10 nothing to the Texans in that Super Bowl run. You can look at all these games that they came from behind. And there was a part of me that even thought yesterday at halftime, 
I thought, hey, 21-6 with Kansas City getting the ball, there's still time. And even at 28-9, in my heart, I knew it was over, but Kansas City could have scored a touchdown there. And it could have made it 28-16. They would have been down by 12. I understand they probably would have gone for two to make it 28-17 so they could be within two scores, touchdown, two point, and then a field goal. But nobody would have thought that this was the game that Mahomes and company were just going to sting up the joint. And to me, this is not all on Mahomes. You cannot blame him on this. Yes, this is going on his record as far as his legacy is concerned. But when you think about this game, it's about how putrid the offensive line was. You know, it wasn't as if Mahomes... Granted, he didn't throw a touchdown and he did have two interceptions, but the two interceptions were out of desperation because that's just how it was. That's how the game played out and that's how their offense played out with their Swiss cheese line that they had. I can't stress it any more than that. As for Andy Reid, I'm a little bit surprised they didn't adjust. I get that they were probably trusting in what they did, not only just this whole season, but the past three seasons with the Reid and Eric Bieniemy combination. Totally get all that. But with the way the game was shaping up, and especially down 21-6, like I said earlier, not going into no huddle, not going for the wide receiver screens, not taking the safe short routes, because their run game, although they had some chunks at times, but we all know this offense is predicated on the pass. And even though Kelsey got his catches later on, and Hill made a few plays, but everything was underneath. Well, you know what? They should have done that, and worked inside out as opposed to outside in to get the ball out of Mahomes' hands for him not to face the rush the way he did. And that's why I was surprised that Andy Reid didn't decide to say, you know what, we got to switch this up here because there's no way if we continue to have Mahomes drop back, he's just going to be under siege and that's what you saw all night. So a little bit surprised there. So that goes on Reid also, but he won a Super Bowl last year, so it's not as if he's going to get knocked enormously here, but he does deserve a knock just from that regard. And even with the adjustments... I get that they probably weren't going to win the game. Tampa was the better team, understood. But, geez, you got to try something here. This is the last game of the year, and you're going for a back-to-back. So that's that. But KC, they're going to be heard from. We know as long as the quarterback is there, and we know he's going to be there for a long time, and the surrounding parts, the rest of the offense. Now, they're going to need some upgrades on that offensive line, as you saw there last night. But they're going to be fine moving forward. Now, sadly, for Tampa, this is all about Brady. We could talk about the organization all we want. We could talk about them going back-to-back, which I don't think that's going to be the case. It's easy to say that the day after. But I'm going to say this now, and I've never said it before, but I'm going to say it in these words. Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback of all time. I don't think he deserves to be up there with the greatest ever. And what I mean by that is Tom Brady Jim Brown. Is Tom Brady Lawrence Taylor. Is Tom Brady Jerry Rice. Yes, if you're going to base it on championships, Super Bowl appearances and all that, I mean, please, there's no argument there. And we understand that he has the numbers to back it up in his football career. But when I'm talking about the greatest ever. Where does Tom Brady rank? To me, he doesn't crack those top three. I mean, think about it. Jim Brown, a lot of people to this day and age, I get it that you have to be 60 or over if you've watched Jim Brown play. But at the same time, Everybody pound for pound looks at Jim Brown as the greatest ever as far as all-around football player. Lawrence Taylor, for what he did and how he revolutionized the game, to me, you would think he's number two. And then Jerry Rice and everything, that what he did at the wide receiver position and the numbers that he put up, to me, those would be the top three players. And then however you want to list it after that. But as far as quarterback goes, he's hands down number one. I don't want to hear for the old school or even the Guy that's going to look at Joe Montana. Well, he made it to four Super Bowls, won all four, and not only that, but took home three MVPs in the process. Understood. But if Joe Montana made it to 10 Super Bowls, I can guarantee you he would probably lose two or three of them. And right now, Brady's been to 10, and he's 7-3. and And he's won five MVPs. So think about this. Forget about the rings for a minute. He's won more Super Bowl MVPs then people have won rings. So yeah, Montana may have four rings. Bradshaw may have four rings and two Super Bowl MVPs himself. But just the five Super Bowl MVPs says it all. And granted, the defense, we know that they're not going to give the MVP to the defense because they had a huge hand in this game. And Brady, he did the job. 20 for 26. He barely cracked 200 yards. 
it's not as if he had a dominant game, but of course, the numbers are going to stick out. The completion rate, the touchdowns, no interceptions, no turnovers, the whole run, he's Tom Brady, and that's it. And I understand people also want to put him up there as the greatest of all time in any of the sports. Go up there with Jordan, go up there with Russell, Ali, Tiger. You want to put him there, you can put him there. I could see why. But at the same time, Tampa, for right now, it's more about Brady than it is about the rest of the team, unfortunately. Because if it wasn't for Brady, would this team be in this position right now? Obviously, if Jameis Winston was still there or any other quarterback for that matter, not the case. And the one thing that I will say before I move on to the other stuff with the Super Bowl, what's interesting is that that buy for Tampa Bay came at a time after losing to Kansas City, which probably reset their roster and pretty much put them off to them winning a Super Bowl only because the last four games of the season, they were against bad opponents and then we know what happened here in this postseason. But you wonder, if that bye was, let's say, week five, week eight, week ten even, would they have had enough gas in the tank to not only push this team to a Super Bowl, but also win it? Just a little food for thought, that's all. All right, let me get to what's happening here with the Super Bowl. And I'm going to break this down quick, people. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but her singing America the Beautiful, uh, she slayed that six times every day and ten times on Sunday. And obviously, yesterday being Sunday, she destroyed it. Sang it beautifully, played it well. What more can you say? That was, to me, the highlight, more so than the national anthem. That country version of the Star Spangled Banner by Eric Church, who I wouldn't know if the guy fell on me and Jasmine Sullivan. All right. They wanted to tweak it a little bit, a little bit of a mashup there of the regular star spangled banner as we know it. And having that country version. Okay. But uh, did not resonate with me. Did not work for me. I just didn't like it. So that's that the commercials. I didn't pay much attention to them to me over the years. They've kind of waned. You don't have the anticipation of the commercials like you once did, or at least for me, that is, Although I will say, boy, Paramount, they spent a king's ransom with all their commercials knowing that their streaming service starts, what is it, March 4th? Man, I tell you, they jammed those commercials down your throat the entire evening. You would think that Paramount is the only streaming service that's out there. Forget Netflix, forget Hulu, forget Amazon. It's all about Paramount, baby. Yeah, kudos to them. I mean, listen, no sweat off my back, but geez. I think I've seen enough Paramount commercials to last 20 lifetimes. As far as the halftime, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I knew it was going to be a little bit different because who the artist is. And for those who don't know, The Weeknd, his last album, After Hours, which I still need to hear. And to me, he had the song of the year in Blinding Lights. That song by far. You can listen to that over and over and over again. Maybe it's me because it's more generational. When I hear that, I think of 80s, the synthesizers, Miami Vice. It just has that vibe. And he got robbed, screwed by the Grammys. Because he didn't even get any Grammys for the album, for the song. And you heard it nonstop throughout the summer. But put that aside. With that album, with the blood on his face and the bandages and all that. I thought he was going to come out more with that angle. Which probably would have scared Middle America away. And wondering who the hell this guy is. Or did he just come out of a barroom brawl or a fight. But that's just the theme of the album. But with that being said. I didn't mind the lights with the window maze and all the extras when he was singing Can't Feel My Face. I know that became an instant meme because a lot of people were just kind of dizzying with the lights and the mirrors and everybody just running around the background. Also, I was surprised that most of the performance took place off the field and I was thinking to myself, geez, is this going to be a situation where we're not even going to have the performer on the field at any point? of the, Which really didn't matter at the end of the day because you did see him come out at the end, but... We all know 50-yard line, the stage, the pyrotechnics, everything. But this wasn't the case. He had that in the end zone for the most part. But I did love the effect with the blinding lights and everybody on the field. His extras pretty much suited with him with the bandages. I enjoyed it. I I thought it was really good. I understand it may not have been a cup of tea for everybody, which is always the case when it comes to some of these artists and what they do. Now, word on the street was that he did put $7 million of his own money toward the production of this where the NFL usually puts $10 million in production. Now remember, the NFL doesn't pay anybody 
for these 12 to 15 minute halftime performances, which that eh, could be a little bit, come on NFL, maybe you could pony up a little bit, but they figure, hey, this is free publicity for them. We don't have to pay them. It's their stage to do whatever they want for the most part. And away we go. I thought it was great. May not be for everybody. Is it going to go in the annals of one of the great halftime performances? Is it going to be Prince a la 2007 Super Bowl 41? Maybe not, but I thought he was great. I thought he was excellent as far as the songs. And I'll just leave it at that. I'll continue here because there's still a few news and notes and some nuggets here with the NFL that I want to get to before I get to some other things. Now, CBS had the game for the second time in three years. And I wondered why. Brought that up last week. Well, I read that. They did switch with NBC so NBC could have that smooth transition starting this summer with the Olympics where we'll see if that's going to take place, obviously with COVID. But the network does have the Summer Olympics in Tokyo 2021. Then you'll have the Super Bowl there in February of next year, which will be in LA, SoFi Stadium. And then just weeks later are the Winter Olympics. So that was the reason for them to flip-flop with CBS in order for CBS to have this broadcast, so now NBC could just pretty much one, two, three, roll them off with the Olympics of the summer and winter, sandwiching the Super Bowl, which will be 56 out in LA. So that's number one. A few other things. The Hall of Fame announcements, the class of 2021, highlighted by No Shock, Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson, Calvin Johnson, as well as Alan Fanica, John Lynch. I know Drew Pearson. Through the Veterans Committee, he'll be enshrined in Canton. No surprise there. You figured those guys, especially the top three, were going to be there. I know a lot of people could look at Alan Fanica. Why him? The guy was a six-time All-Pro guard for the Steelers. And he did play with the Jets in Arizona. But we get that they get very little shine. The offensive guards, sometimes even the tackles, unless your name is Anthony Munoz or Jonathan Ogden, etc. But congratulations to all those guys as they'll make it to the Hall of Fame. The awards there Saturday night where Aaron Rodgers was your MVP, no surprise. Aaron Donald, Defensive Player of the Year, which I know as a Steeler fan. TJ Watt, I get Donald as Donald. He's the game's most disruptive and dominant player in the league. But TJ Watt had a season worthy of being Defensive Player Rookie of the Year. I'll just leave it at that. Offensive Rookie Justin Herbert. Chase Young, no surprise there as far as defensive rookie. Kevin Stefanski, your coach of the year for the Browns. Russell Wilson, your Walter Payton man of the year. And that's what you have as far as the awards go. Is Carson Wentz out in Philadelphia? Reports said that he has requested a trade. It looks like there's not going to be amending offenses there with the Eagles and Carson Wentz, even with the new coach in tow. Now, the Eagles have come out and said that they are expected to trade him soon. I guess a lot of that has to be because of what the Rams traded off for Matthew Stafford and how they got the two number ones back. And I'm sure that Howie Roseman and Jeff Lurie, the GM and owner of the Eagles, are probably looking at it as, okay, well, Wentz, although his production has tailed off a little bit, but he's still young. He's still on the come up, you would think. And they may even go back a few years ago when he was on the verge of becoming the league MVP. They may also try to hang their hat on that, knowing that they could net a bunch of first-round picks, not only for this year, but in years to come. If that's their logic and thinking, then God bless them. Now, are they believers in Jalen Hurts moving forward? That remains to be seen, but I would think that a lot of this could be based on what the Lions got in this trade for Stafford. So... We'll see how that unfolds here in the days and weeks to come. Now, speaking of that Stafford trade, Jared Goff came out the other day, LA Times, that the feeling was mutual as far as him moving on from the Rams. We know that there seemed to be a disconnect at the end of the year between him and Sean McVay. So now he'll get to start over in Detroit, have his own new team, new coach, GM, etc. So let's see what happens with Goff as he plays in the Motor City. And then uh, your As the World Turns in Houston, which will continue... With Deshaun Watson, as the Texans now insist they won't be trading their embattled quarterback. Now we figure that damage control is in full effect here. Now the situation with Watson is going to be complicated for this reason. And I was thinking about this. We talked about him signing that long-term deal. The four-year, hundred and what is it, $35 million contract or $45 million, whatever it is. And we know he has a no-trade clause. But if he sits out, 
And there have been no indication of that because the football season just ended. So there's still plenty of time between the opening of the quote-unquote season, which will be the free agency season sometime in about the next five, six weeks or so. And then, of course, the draft, etc. So there's a lot of time between now and then. But if he were to sit out, obviously he's not going to get paid. And it's not as if that, oh, I want to get traded to this team, that the organization is going to say, no, we're not going to trade you. So either you sit out and not get paid, or you're just going to have to suck it up and play with us. Now, hopefully they wouldn't come out in that manner because you know they have to pretty much lay out the rose petals. They got to lay out the cushy bed. They got to make sure that this marriage tries to stay intact because of the four more years that's left on the Sean Watson's contract with that no trade clause. So this isn't going to be a situation where the Sean Watson, who for all intents and purposes comes across as a great guy, charitable guy, as down to earth as you possibly can. We know about his situation growing up and what he's done to even pay back some of the people in Houston, going back to what happened there with the hurricane feeding the cafeteria workers and giving them checks or his game checks to have them rebuild their homes or at least to get themselves back on their feet. We know what type of guy he is. But would it surprise you if he pulls a James Harden here? I hope he doesn't. And I hope he doesn't want to choose his team a la the NBA player empowerment. But again, he has a lot of time on that contract. It's not as if he has one more year left or maybe he's two years out. He's four years out. So the Texans... And they're right to do whatever it takes to keep them. So we'll see how that unfolds because, you know, that's going to be a tug of war unlike we've seen in quite some time. And then one last thing, Marty Schottenheimer, which was stated the other day that he is in hospice right now at the age of 77. And we know how much of a contributor he has been, especially with the coaching fraternity in the NFL. Over 200 wins, although the postseason was cruel to him. All you got to look back is the fumble and the drive in Cleveland and all those failed opportunities there, not only in Kansas City, but also San Diego. So Marty, who who knows if he's going to be with us this time next week, but thoughts, prayers, everything goes out to the Schottenheimer family. And uh, let's see if uh, Marty could uh, hang on there a little bit longer as he's at the age of 77. All right, before I get to the winter sports, Uh, I want to get to the baseball because as we're now about eight or nine days away from camps opening up and the big story last week in baseball, as we've seen with the free agents that have been signed, whether your name is George Springer, JT Real Muto, we saw the other day Marcel Ozuna is going to stay in Atlanta, four years, $64 million. Well, the big free agent pitcher, a one named Trevor Bauer, It looked like it was going to be between the Dodgers and Mets for services where the Mets, as was reported, that they had a deadline of 12 noon as a Friday, take it or leave it type of deal, which I believe was supposed to be more years and the same opt-outs that Bauer received in his contract currently, which is that of the defending world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, Bauer is from Southern California, so maybe that was one of the reasons why he went back home. But if the contract by the Mets was similar, if not better than the Dodgers, it could certainly make you think as a Met fan, did he choose the safe landing of being at home and being on a staff where he has Walker Bueller, Clayton Kershaw, David Price, etc.? And even though the Mets staff isn't a shabby either, headlined by Jacob deGrom, but knowing that the organization hasn't won a World Series in 35 years, We get no fans in the building, but if there are to be fans later on this year, will that be a situation where that could possibly be a, let's say, a testy romance? All those things got to factor, and we'll probably never know the answers to that. But as a Met fan, by him going to the Dodgers, better them than us. I'm just going to say it bluntly. I talked about it last week. Throughout his career, he has had two good years. And I believe he's, what now, 30 years old? And it's not to throw ice water on his performance last year, but he did win a Cy Young by pitching in 13 starts. So we can't get crazy. And he's had a lot of years where his ERA was in the fours. I believe in 2018, he had a very good year, and even 2016. But some of these other years, Bauer, the guy was just an average pitcher. And I'm not going to pay him. Granted that he had opt-outs after 
21, 22, etc. I get that. But we all know it's the persona, it's the attention that he warrants, him having to deal with the media. I did talk about the fans, the team's expectations here in New York. Now he goes to LA, a team that's already won. And I'm not going to try to compare him to Kevin Durant, but at the same time, this is a Kevin Durant move. He's like, hey, I'm going on a team that's already won. I'm going on a team that I could just kind of blend in the middle. I could still probably post on Twitter and do all this other stuff and then be out in LA and close to home, but it won't be as much of a distraction because the team has already won and I could just go in, pitch, do what I need to do and go home and that's it. So you know what? I'm glad that that's the case. Because the last thing that I want to deal with as a Met fan is headaches. And that's not a guarantee that Bauer's going to be that. And you can't knock the Mets here. I get some Met fans are up in arms. Even yesterday, they signed Albert Almora, the former Cub, who's a center fielder. And you had people come out and say, wow, look at the Mets in their offseason. Look who they got today, Albert Almora. All right, relax. Jeez. And yes, could they have ponied up and brought George Springer here? Absolutely. And we know that the Mets are probably right now, if I had to rank them, they're probably somewhere between four and seven in the National League. They're not in the top three. They're not the Dodgers. They're not the Braves. They're not even the Padres right now. You can't say that. But four through seven, yes. They're in that pack with the other guys in the NL East, with the Phillies, the Nationals, the Cardinals, teams like that. Understood. And I remember weeks ago, or maybe even months at this point, I thought Dustin Pedroia had retired and he made it official earlier last week. And when I saw that, I said, wait a second, is this a second go around? Almost like a Dwayne Wade, you know, three retirements in the span of three months. Well, anyway, the former second baseman who was a rookie of the year, also MVP, 2008, three-time World Series champion, small in stature, but tremendous heart. We know he had those knee injuries over the last few years with the collision there at second base with Manny Machado when he was with the Orioles, but he goes off into the sunset. Great career. Whenever you have a guy that's, what, 5'8", and to have the career that he had and played as long as he did, congratulations to him on a great career, and let's see what the next stage of his life brings. Chris Archer returns to the Rays on a one-year deal, and that was a trade for the Pirates was just god-awful. They send back Tyler Glasnow, Austin Meadows, and now Archer, who's a guy that will probably be a fourth or fifth starter. And who knows? Maybe Archer will be renewed. He knows he doesn't have to be the guy, which he once was down in Tampa, and this was before they had the success. So let's see how he does as Tampa, who lost two pitchers this offseason with both Charlie Morton and Blake Snell. We'll see what happens there. And then you have a few other deals where Sean Doolittle signs with the Reds for one year, the former national lefty reliever. Nelson Cruz goes back to Minnesota as DH there for $13 million in one year. And then longtime shortstop Elvis Andrews, he goes from Texas to Oakland for the DH Chris Davis. And then in closing for the baseball segment, longtime reporter for ESPN, Pedro Gomez, yesterday died unexpectedly at the age of 58 that was sudden and shocking news don't know what the cause of death was at the moment he survived by a wife and a couple of kids one I believe is in the Red Sox organization as a pitcher just terrible news to hear 58 years old I mean geez that's as six more years that's going to be me or six plus I'm not 52 just yet but man that's if that doesn't put things in perspective when it comes to mortality goes I don't know what will so Thoughts, prayers, condolences. It seems like a week-in, week-out basis I'm doing this with the deaths and throughout the sports world. But uh, yes, just very sad news and all thoughts, prayers to the Gomez family. Now, as we turn our attention to the NBA, a rather slow week in the association where pretty much the big news coming out of this week was the situation with the All-Star game that's going to take place March the 7th where the league and the Players Association agreed on that. Being a one-night event, skills competition, a whole nine. And I said this last week, why would they have that game during this pandemic and in this climate is beyond me. And you saw that this week with LeBron James coming out. The first person that I read even coming out and saying anything was De'Aaron Fox, the Sacramento Kings guard. 
he said that he thinks it's stupid to play this game. And he even pointed it out, just like everybody else does, as obvious as it is, it's all about the dollar. All about the money, all about the green, and rightfully so. We know that the NBA right now, I'm sure maybe even with TNT, they probably said, hey, if you're able to put an all-star game together, then we'll air it and also pony up a few bucks for you in the league. So maybe that had something to do with it. Don't know. Can't say that for sure. But again, it is about money. And that's what we have here with this all-star game situation. Even LeBron coming out saying that it's a slap in the face of the players. He said that he had zero energy, zero excitement for the all-star game. Doesn't understand why. He did say he'll be there. Now, of course, I understand, even if you are LeBron James, you could say that all you want, but we all know with him, it's about the fans and about appeasing them. So although it may sound like he's talking out of his mouth or two sides of his mouth, which he is, because if he was really against it, he wouldn't show up, but he knows that that's going to be a PR disaster for the league, maybe even a hit on his reputation. And although I agree with what he said, but it's tough for them to say, well, if I get voted, I'm going to show up. Come on, LeBron. We know you're going to get voted. We know you're going to be there. And yeah, doesn't look good on him if he's going to say one thing and then show up and do another. But at least he was honest about it and did say that yeah, if he's going to be there, he is. So it's not as if he's trying to backtrack or have to retract some of the things he said about that, about, oh, I don't care about this game, but hey, I'll be there front and center. Yeah, I know it sounds that way, but that's just what it is. And that's unfortunately how it goes. And speaking of LeBron, I'm not going to get into this because to me, this is just senseless. But I know that situation in Atlanta where he was joined with the fan and that courtside Karen that he called that woman, which to me, she was just trying to get her 15 minutes. I'm not even going to spend any more time talking about her. Surprised that there are actually fans courtside at these games. And I get that they got to make money. But geez, do you think that if they're going to have anybody close to the court, there would be five rows or whatever because... You don't want to have a situation like that where somebody has their mask down and these players obviously are on the court. It's just, it's a bad optic. Why would the Hawks or any organization for that matter sell those seats? And granted, people are going to pay for them and it costs a fortune and there's revenue understood. But why even go there? Makes no sense if you ask me. You had a trade yesterday where Derrick Rose comes back to New York as a member of the Knicks. So he reunites with coach Tom Thibodeau from his days in Chicago and also Minnesota. But more preferably his MVP year in 2012 with the Bulls. They traded away Dennis Smith Jr. in a second round pick. Now, will he be a help? Now, I haven't watched or followed Derrick Rose. And I know he's had his moments here over the last few years. We get that he is a far cry from the player he was 10 years ago. But at the same time, you would think that maybe a little leadership, veteran leadership at that, the relationship between Tibbs and Rose is a special bond. They didn't have to give up much for him. We know Dennis Smith was pretty much on his way out anyway. And Rose, who has, what, $7 million, and at this point, I guess is probably owed another $5 million for the rest of the season because he's on a one-year deal. Why not? I get that he's a name. He's not the star name that he once was. Is he a guy that's going to put this team into the playoffs? They're now in the 8th seed at 11-14. and 14. All debatable. But I look at this trade as more of a plus than a minus because you gave up nothing. You get a guy back that's probably going to be reinvigorated to play for this coach to maybe even push this Nick team into a postseason and maybe, maybe win a game or two if they do make it as an 8th seed. So I can't kill the trade. And then you have Kevin Durant out until Friday after he was in close contact with a team employee after he got a ride with this said employee who had tested positive for COVID later on in the day. I believe this was sometime late last week. So Durant is not going to play until Friday. So you got that to deal with net fans as they've hit the skids here a little bit here over the course of the last couple of games. I know they lost to Philadelphia a couple of nights ago. So... Other than that, it's been real quiet in the association. I know as far as on the court, the Bucks have played well here as they try to inch closer to the top spot in the East. You also have the Utah Jazz who have now won 15 of the last 16 games. And interestingly enough, when we talked about those comments that Shaquille O'Neal said to Donovan Mitchell a few weeks ago about how, yeah, you're going to need to take your game up another level. What do you got to say about that? And he's like, all right, well, it's good that he and his team are doing that now. But really, you need to see this in April, May, and June, or in this case, maybe even July, because 
And that's not to knock Donovan Mitchell. I like him as a player. I don't get to watch him that often. Obviously, they play out in the West Coast or obviously in the mountain time zone. But for the Jazz to have this type of success here, 24 games into their season, as great of a story as it is, and the optics look great if you're in that region, but uh-uh, I need to see this when the money's on the line, when it really counts, and that's in the postseason. So they could win all these games right now, and they could maybe beat the Lakers along the way, and the Clippers, and pull off another long winning streak, and do all these great things in a regular season, but to me, it's not going to matter until they do this in the postseason. So let me see them get to a conference final and lose to the Lakers, maybe in seven games, and I'll assess it then. But right now, kudos, props, the whole nine, but I need to see more. But that's what we got for the NBA right now. Nothing else really to highlight or to showcase, but now with football done, a lot of attention will be paid to the association moving forward. And same for college basketball, because what we got there is pretty much status quo. I know you've had some teams lose here over the last week, whether you're Villanova, losing to St. John's, and even Creighton, for that matter, losing to Georgetown, and they lost at home. Usually you see those upsets, a la St. John's beating Villanova in Queens. They didn't play that game in the Garden. So they played it in Carnesecca Hall, beating Villanova, which you can look at. All right, it's an upset, but it was a road game for Villanova, so they're due to lose to any of their conference opponents, especially on the road, kind of like the NFL where you had the Steelers lose to the Bengals on a Monday night on the road. That happens. But for Georgetown to win at Creighton, that was a shock. But then again, Creighton, although they are a very good team, but not ranked amongst the top 10 in the nation. But now you have a situation where number two Baylor has postponed games. And we'll see where their season goes here as right now they're looking at their next scheduled game being Texas Tech on Saturday. We've talked about this time and time again. We know about Michigan having their season paused for COVID and they're going to extend that a little bit more. So they're still entrenched in the number four team in the country. And we wonder whether or not these games are going to be made up or if they can be made up and how this is going to affect when it comes tournament time or especially when the rankings come out with the bracket, etc. And this is happening throughout all the leagues. Same with the NHL as I'll get to in a minute, but with the college basketball scenario, even though you have Gonzaga, Baylor, Villanova, which they'll probably drop when the rankings come out later today, Michigan will probably flip-flop with Villanova. Then you had Texas, who lost to Baylor and Oklahoma State, so although right now they're currently ranked fifth in the nation, you would think that they will plummet a few spots down. Ohio State, who had a big win against Iowa there on the road in the middle of the week, they may move up a slot or two. And then you have Oklahoma, Alabama, as Alabama lost to Missouri. And they were down 22 points in that game. And they had a frantic comeback only to fall short at the end where they lost 68-65 to Mizzou. So Alabama will slip out of the top 10. And you'll see some teams flip-flop one another here. You would think as the top 25 will be released some point later today. But we'll keep our eye and fingers on the college basketball pulse now as we move along here in the month of February. And then to the NHL, which, similar to the NBA, very quiet. Not much there going on as far as the league goes, but all these postponements here. You had the Sabres, who had postponed games all of last week and are supposed to start up today. Colorado now has games that are canceled through Thursday. And they've joined Vegas, New Jersey, Minnesota, as teams that have had postponements in their seasons due to COVID, and that's not including Dallas and Carolina, who had to delay the start of their seasons here, where Dallas, they missed pretty much the first, what was it, eight to ten days of the season. And with the NHL, like I said, not anything to ride home or shake a stick at right now. By the end of this week, they'll be a month into their season, and pretty much from what we've seen here, it's been status quo too. Not a lot of teams have distance themselves from the pack. Although it looks like Tampa's now starting to click on all cylinders as they've risen to the top of the Central after winning four straight. And we know Tampa now is being called Champa Bay. And you also have to throw the Rays in the mix even though they didn't win a World Series, but they made it to a World Series. But the Lightning now looks like they're back in championship form here in this early part of the season. Other teams have known the Bruins, of course, have played well here. 
leading the top of the East. A lot of people looking at the Leafs there in the North, as we've said time and time again, and it's well chronicled how the Leafs are pretty much the one team in the NHL that needs a Stanley Cup championship in the worst way. Very early right now, but off to a great start, although the Canadians have played very well too, so they're tooth and nail in the North. And then Vegas with their downtime, even only playing nine games in single digits where everybody else in the division has played at least 10. Some have actually played 13 if you're Anaheim. But Vegas holds the top spot split with Colorado and St. Louis. But because their record is 7-1-1, although have anywhere between two and three games in hand. And again, we talked about it weeks ago. Will there be those games being made up across along the way? Remains to be seen as we try to trudge through the sports dead zone. Remember that, people? The dead zone of sports, now that the NFL's over, and between now and, we'll say March Madness, because you can't really wrap your arms around the baseball exhibition once that gets started, but pretty much March Madness will kick us off into the slow progression of April, and as we all know, and as I've repeatedly said time after time, April is the best sports month of the year, but that's Plenty of time to chew on between now and then, so we can't even think about April as we still have to get through February and then obviously next month. So we have plenty of time between now and then to get into all the other winter sports, including the Australian Open, which kicked off yesterday, where Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams had easy victories in their first round. Now, it's interesting, I have not watched a lick of this, and we know the time zones and the difference you can't really watch or follow, but they're expecting... 30,000 fans there in attendance with no masks. And if you wonder why, like how in the hell as people of inhabitants of this country are wondering, wait, why are people in the stands, no cardboard cutouts and without masks? Not only did the players have a strict 14-day quarantine prior to the start of this tournament, but if you weren't under a rock over the last 10, 11 months, they have contained this spread of the virus because of the strict guidelines in that country so pretty much it's back to normal for the four tennis fans that listen to this that they are able to host events with numerous people in the building so if you're watching highlights on sports center or if you happen to come across let's say of some controversy and you catch a clip of what's going on down under and you get a background shot of fans in the stands and you see nobody has masks on, you're going to say to yourself, what the hell happened there? Wait a second. How are they not masks on these people? Or wait, why don't they have masks? How come we aren't wearing masks? Well, they were able to curtail the spread of the virus and had those strict lockdowns. And I'm not trying to say that they, America should have incorporated the same thing, but that just goes to show that if everybody complies and everybody takes care of not only themselves, but their family and are courteous and respectful of other people that they could get through this and get to a point where it's as close to normal as it possibly could be. But with this tournament, you wonder, Serena, I know she's trying to get to win another Australian Open and you figure Naomi Osaka is going to be the one player that stands in her way. We know the women's is more wide open as opposed to the men's Novak Djokovic, who a lot of people think is going to win this tournament. He's won it, I believe, eight times. No Roger Federer. We get that guys like Dominic Team and also Rafael Nadal will stand in his way. But this has been the Joker's tournament, and I can't see it being anybody else but him. So not a lot of drama, you would think, on the men's side. And on the women's side, it's more wide open, as you've seen over the years. And Serena, she's been on the precipice of winning this tournament. And you figure with all the downtime, especially between the U.S. Open and now, she usually lets it all out here to the tune of her getting to a semifinal, even a final, but falling up short here over the last few years. So will this be the time and place for her to get that Australian Open? And she's won several of them in the past. So it's not as if this is one crowning achievement that she's looking to obtain to validate her career by any stretch. But something just to keep an eye on. When it comes to the women's side, and we'll obviously keep an eye on it as we move along here. And then one last note before I get to my hero and zero of the week. Unfortunately, another death in the world of sports. For the boxing fan out there who remembers Leon Spinks, 
And how could you forget as a boy when you get the Sports Illustrated in the mail and you see the toothless grin on the cover and one of the iconic covers of Sports Illustrated, he was the one that defeated Muhammad Ali, I believe 1978 and it was a much ballyhooed fight and Spinks beating Ali. Now, Ali at that point, a little long in the tooth. We know of all the battles prior to that. Forget about what took place in the Olympics and then in the 60s with Liston and obviously with Frazier and Foreman and go down the list. But that was a fight that was much ballyhooed and Spinks was a guy that wasn't really on many people's radars and for him to have that upset over Muhammad Ali was the, let's face it, the achievement of his career. Died at the age of 67 and was a guy who also had a brother, Michael Spinks. Yes, that's the same guy who was the Heavyweight champ of the world, but lost to Mike Tyson in 90 seconds down in Atlantic City there. What was it, 89? Or maybe late 88, I think it was. So for Leon Spinks, 67. Thoughts, prayers, condolences to the Spinks family. And again, go back to that cover or even Google it. Leon Spinks, Sports Illustrated, and you'll see that. And man, that is one that, uh, again, as I think back as a boy, just resonates big time. When I think of Leon Spinks, I think of that cover, so... All right, let me get to my hero and zero of the week. So my hero of the week, thank goodness I don't have to report a death here because it's something, although it came at the expense of a death, but I'll get right to it. Atlanta defensive tackle Grady Jarrett. He surprised a 12-year-old boy with two Super Bowl tickets after learning that he had lost three family members in a house fire last week in Athens, Georgia. Now, not only was this a great gesture by him, but also the NFL as well. That Grady, during a Zoom call with the young boy, gave him a little pep talk, talked about perseverance, maybe in hopes of him making it to the NFL someday. And I believe he lost his mom, his grandmother, and his sister in this fire, which, oh man, this, can't even imagine what's going through that boy's mind. But at least for one day or for a few hours, the NFL and Grady Jarrett were able to ease some of that pain by giving him those tickets, transportation down to the Super Bowl for him to enjoy that. I don't know if the Buccaneers or the Chiefs were one of his teams, but just having that escape for a few hours was a just a great gesture by him in the league. So they're my heroes of the week. And my zero of the week is former Met manager Mickey Calloway, who is currently the Angels pitching coach and currently suspended by the team, accused of sexual misconduct for sending shirtless photos via text, requesting nude photos from women who worked in the media as well as other advances that you can only imagine. And this is on the heels of what happened with Jared Porter, the former GM of the Mets, and how he was terminated based on his interaction with a reporter as well. Now, who knows what was going on during his tenure at the Mets and how deep this was. Obviously, he didn't focus that on his managing, especially in his first year as a Met manager in 2018. But I don't want to pile on the guy, but you do have to wonder what the Angels are thinking by just suspending him and not being able to terminate him considering what's been going on, not only just in baseball, but throughout this country. And I get that the person who's sick of the cancel culture, et cetera, et cetera, but tough because I'm sure that if your favorite podcast host or your favorite athlete or whatever was doing something like that, you would be appalled and be disgusted and maybe think about not wanting to root for that person or even that team ever again. So that's just how it is in this day and age. And Mickey Calloway should have known better. And of course, we all know that he's married on top of that. So that also puts a even darker light on the situation. So Mickey, my guy, you are my zero of the week. And that'll do it, my good people. I know that moving forward, it's just going to be all about the NBA, NHL. I'm sure we're bringing in some NFL stuff, college basketball, baseball as well. Never fear, J Reels and the podcast will always be here. So please make sure you tune in week in and week out. I appreciate you all. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast and what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And if I may ask you to please help the growth and expansion of this podcast by just subscribing, rating, and reviewing this said pod um, wherever you get your podcasts. Just like I said at the top, Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, you know all the platforms. Also the website at jreels.com. 
Because what that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast and in turn generate interest to those who aren't familiar with the podcast. So whether that is the former or current athlete, the blogger, broadcaster, writer, studio host, to have them on as guests. So in turn, I could share their experience with what happened on the field, in the broadcast booth, in the press box, etc. To you guys to do this, not only just once a week every Monday, but also twice a week to share their stories with you guys. And in the coming weeks, I have a few guests that I'm lining up. I haven't recorded a couple of these. I'm hoping to get Gerald Brown, who is a serious XM host for the NBA channel, to get his take not only just on the NBA's first month and also the euphoria of his Tampa Bay Buccaneers winning a Super Bowl. So we have that hopefully to come. And with your contribution there, I would greatly appreciate it. If you want to reach out by sending me a question, comment with some criticism, praise, whatever it may be, bring it on. And you can do that at any of my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram at JReels or the JReels podcast, Strictly Sports. On Twitter, JReels1, just a number. On Facebook, the JReels podcast fan page. And then the old-fashioned way, the JReels podcast at gmail.com. I'm always open, ready, willing to take whatever it is that you have to say as we'll have some friendly banter, questions, whatever it is. Just uh, do so, and I'll be sure to follow up. And for those who want to contribute to this podcast, whether it's the production, the website, equipment, etc., you could do so at www.patreon.com slash Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Once again, whatever you want to contribute, I'll be more than appreciative, grateful, thankful for that. As I continue to push forth more content, creative content, whether it's solo with guests, etc. Because if you do know or do not know, well, you're going to know. I plan on going nowhere. It's in the blood, people. It's in the DNA. I've been watching, following sports pretty much since day one. I love to talk about it, share my thoughts, opinions, analysis, everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>